I came across this week the moan of a colleague who was uh, complaining that no one in the congregation was willing to um, phone up and uh, report that a fire door was broken. He was saying, this, this can't go on if I have to do it. The church is imploding, he said. I uh, also know that same colleague um, is the guy who takes the bins out um, every week, and if he goes on holiday, the bins don't go out. I thought a couple of things after he made that comment. The first I, I thought was, once again, I was um, thankful for folk here at, at, at Claremont, that there are so many folks, not just with uh, fabric of the buildings, although that, but so many folks who do do make good contributions and, and help in so many different ways. It's, it's great, and we shouldn't take one another for granted. But the other thought I had was, gosh, worrying about a church imploding because someone doesn't put out bins or phone about the fire door. Surely there's bigger things than that in the sense that that's about the organization, and organizations are important. But the bigger concern surely should be about the mission of the church, about where God is in the world. Far more serious is the impact or non-impact of the gospel in the world today. That's more important than whether a particular church survives. Now, that issue about whether the gospel can survive, whether the gospel will be well received, that, that is not something new. We, we sometimes maybe think this is just something that's happened in our day and age, happened in our part of the world, but that's not true. For example, we, we see it right back with the prophet Isaiah, verse 1 of the passage in Isaiah 53 that, that Alva read. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And verses 2 and 3 make it plain that actually pretty much nobody is what he's thinking and feeling. And this wasn't a, a bad day that Isaiah was having, and particularly feeling glum. But when he was called by God, and we have the story of that call back in Isaiah chapter 6, the same thing is said to Isaiah, you're going to preach the word, but they're not going to understand, they're not going to get it. In chapter 28, he, he's, he's reassessing his ministry in the same terms. I'm being faithful, I'm saying what I'm supposed to be saying in terms of what God has given me, and people are not getting it. And they're not just Isaiah, many others, including Jesus himself. And so, in the other reading that Alva read from John chapter 1, he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. A few chapters on in John's gospel, in John chapter 6, after Jesus has fed the 5,000 and after he's given some teaching on being the bread of life, some people found that a bit hard to stomach. And we're told at verse 66, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Later in Jesus' life, and at the end of Matthew's gospel, as he's just on the eve of the, uh, entering Jerusalem at what we call Palm Sunday, he looks in the hill from the hillside over Jerusalem, and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I, how I long to gather you, how I long to take you to myself, just as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not have it. Now, the links between Isaiah and Jesus are not just about each of them being rebuffed by their contemporaries. 
In the four songs, the servant songs that Isaiah has, he's setting out prophecies about the Messiah who's to come, prophecies that were fulfilled by Jesus. Now, last Sunday, looking at the final few verses in chapter 52, we noted how the exaltation of the Messiah was to come via his humiliation and suffering. The claim was that Jesus was the Savior of the world, not made in spite of the crucifixion, but because of it. And the astonishing and to some people ridiculous claim is that that particular Jew hanging there on that tortuous Roman death contraption in a wee backwater place in the Roman Empire, here is the Savior of the world. Actually, affecting this work of salvation as he hangs there. Such a message seemed ludicrous to many in Jesus' day and to many since. And yet it is a message, Isaiah says in verse 1 of chapter 53, that, that is from the Lord Himself. It is the arm of the Lord that's at work. Now, we might first imagine that the arm of the Lord means something big and powerful. And God, of course, can be big and powerful and is big and powerful. But His work of salvation is not through that big and powerful work of bullying, but rather coming, as we were looking last week, in humility, coming and serving. He grew up, verse 2 of Isaiah 53, like a tender shoot. Now, Isaiah has used the idea before of a, of a shoot figuring the Messiah, but here it's noticed particularly it's a tender shoot. So, imagine, for example, you're looking at a hillside where it's been covered in heather, but that heather has, has burned, and, and all that's left is a black and blackened mess of, of the hillside. Nothing, nothing is growing. It just looks desolate. And then, and then one, one wee tender shoot emerges, and you think there's life here, possibilities, but, but how fragile. That tender shoot might become a snack for a passing deer. It could be pummeled by the rain. It could be easily stood on by someone or something. It's just so vulnerable. And that's what Isaiah is saying here. The arm of the Lord has been at work, and he grew up, the servant grew up before the Lord like a tender shoot. And so indeed, Jesus was born a, a baby, born into a time and a place where infant mortality was pretty high. Born in the poverty of being born in a borrowed manger. And very soon afterwards, going into re being a refugee taken to Egypt to get away from King Herod. How vulnerable it all is. A wee tender shoot alone in that dry hillside. And this is what God was doing. This situation was being turned around as the tender shoot grows, next bit of verse 2, out of dry ground. The context is not promising. Jesus is born at a time when the people of Israel are under control of the Roman Empire. And though he survived, Jesus, and though he grew, there was, verse 2, seemingly nothing all that special about him. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. 
He wasn't like Saul, King Saul, who was a lot taller than all the others. He wasn't like Samson, who was a lot stronger than all the others. He was the kind of person that you walked by in the street and didn't think anything much of. In his appearance, there was nothing that stood out. And even when his ministry began to take shape and was creating waves, still we're told in Matthew 13 that some folk just said, it's just the carpenter's son. What's all the fuss about? We know, we know his, I know his dad. <laughs> I know his brothers and his sister. Come on. He had worked for his living. He got hungry like the rest of us. He got tired like us. He was misunderstood like us. He got daunted by things like us. He bruised like us. He could be disappointed like us. He was let down by other people like us. He was one of us, and he is one of us still. And then added to that ordinariness, verse 2, is the rejection, verse 3, despised and rejected by mankind. Jesus' ministry did bring him to folks' attention, but yet many people did not like what they saw. True love appeared among us, and we hated it. True beauty appeared, and we preferred ugliness. The light of the world came to us, and we preferred darkness. God in Christ came to stand with us in our pain, in our plight, taking, in our, taking our judgment, standing in our place, and we stood against God. God with us, us against God. Jesus came to be on our side, and we started playing against Him. Crowds yelled for Him to be crucified. Soldiers gambled for His cloak, spat on Him, stuck a crown of thorns on His head. Passers-by yelled smug and facetious comments as He was on the cross. And even one of the thieves crucified alongside Him had a go at Him. He was, verse 3, despised and rejected by mankind. And we are not entirely innocent here, says Isaiah. It was us, verse 2. It, we, verse 3, did these things. We are just as guilty. Isaiah says we are just as guilty in this as if we were the ones who banged in the nails as if we were the ones who had bribed Judas Iscariot, or as if we had the ones who yelled out, crucify him. For it was our sins that put Jesus on the cross. So then, little wonder, isn't it, that from a purely human point of view, of course we can join with Isaiah in wondering who's going to believe that kind of a message. As the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, a passage that we read last week, it sounds foolish. And to those looking for a show of strength, it is weakness. And over the years, many churches and many folks in churches 
have given in to the temptation that we have to change that message, that somehow that message isn't good enough, it's too foolish or too weak. It's not that folk necessarily have wanted to change all of it, but surely some of it, to make it more palatable, to make it make more sense in the world today. People might feel that they cannot accept something that sounds so ludicrous, and so they just take some bits of Jesus. He was kind, and we need to be kind. He accepted everyone. We need to accept everyone. Whether or not those things are true, And some reckon that if we just could maybe dress things up a bit better, make it more edgy, more contemporary, or other folks put more ritual in there. Now, while the way a message is presented is important, of course it is, ultimately it is whether or not the message itself is true that really matters. It's whether the message is effective for salvation that really counts. It is whether or not the arm of the Lord, verse 1, is moving. What kind of sleeve is on the arm of the Lord is of secondary importance. And other folks then have wanted a gospel message about some kind of wisdom that makes sense and so make Jesus out to be someone who just unlocks things in us and gives us peace and happiness and the like. And, and so they, they add in supposed insights of positive thinking from Norman Vincent Peale's rubbish in the 1950s and now mixed in with all kinds of New Age spirituality kind of stuff. It just appeals more to us and we'll dress it up that way. And others suppose that in our age, with all the advanced knowledge we have compared to Jesus' time, we know better than to believe that someone could rise from the dead and so on. Do we really think that Jesus' contemporaries didn't realize that people didn't rise from the dead? Well, they knew that better than us, actually, because they were a lot more used to seeing death than we are. They, They didn't have hospitals, hospices, mortuaries, undertakers. And those critics then try to remove anything miraculous from the message. That's not important. People won't believe that nowadays. Look behind what happened to what it really means. And so, for example, with the story of the feeding of the 5,000, we get the, the vastly overrated William Barclay, and he is incredibly overrated, saying, well, no, they didn't really, Jesus really didn't make all that fish and bread go round. You know, he started sharing out the boys' lunchbox, and then other people were ashamed, and so they took out their picnics and passed it around. That's what he says with his commentary on an absolute drivel. It's not what the text says. It doesn't explain the 12 baskets being gathered up and everything else. And Well, we've got to make it palatable. We've got to somehow because people are not going to believe it if we insist that Jesus fed 5,000 with so little. Well, these and and many, many more ways folks have got to the point of saying, well, you see, we have to somehow change it because nobody's going to believe it. Who has believed our message? And the problem with all of these, and there are many more, is that they resist what God has said And they replace it with our schemes, our ideas, our do-goodery. 
Their dependence is on something that maybe sounds attractive or amenable to folks, but in the long term just creates more problems. And in the long term, and this is more serious, it's thrown out the gospel itself. For the message is only a gospel, as Isaiah notes, verse 1, is when the arm of the Lord is in action. And the arm of the Lord is in action when it's the message that He has given us to share. If God's people are going to be saved, then God will have to act. So many years later than Isaiah, the Apostle Paul said in Romans 1, the words that we began our service with, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Well, we are ashamed of the gospel when we think that somehow the story of a crucified Messiah is not sufficient. We we are ashamed of the gospel when we think it has to be some kind of help mechanism for folks rather than the declaration of what God has done. We are ashamed of the gospel when we think that we can do better than focus clearly on Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. We are ashamed of the gospel when we think it is something that doesn't much matter, and we put the focus on other things, churchy or not. We are ashamed of the gospel when we are not willing to say what Jesus has done and what Jesus is doing in our lives. We are ashamed of the gospel when folk around us are unaware that we're taking up a cross and following Jesus day by day. We are ashamed of the gospel when we doubt its power to change lives, to awaken faith in people, and to bring people out of darkness into light. And when, why, when Isaiah uses the us and the we in verses 2 and 3 of the reading, he uses the past tense. There was a time, he's saying, when we did not see, we did not get it, but not anymore. The arm of the Lord has been moving. Jesus has, from our perspective, from our time, won our salvation. And now the Holy Spirit is given by the risen Jesus to enable us to see And that that means that every time we open the Word of God, and every time we are open to the Word of God, the Lord Himself is reaching out to us. Christ comes to us clothed with His gospel. It also means that every time we share that good news, that message of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, the good news of Jesus, then, then the arm of the Lord is reaching out reaching down into all of life, reaching out to change hearts and change lives. Therefore, we need not be ashamed of such a gospel. It is the power of God is salvation. Church history should tell us that in so many ways we've either subtracted from that or in some instances added to it. neither is right. And when we take the focus of who we are and what we're about 
off of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, then we commit ourselves to a message that is not the power of God for salvation. And we shouldn't be surprised when we see the church imploding when that's what we've done. Let us pray.